Hello, friends, and welcome to The Word is Resistance. My name is Will Green, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm recording this episode from the unceded homeland of the Abenaki and Wabanaki people in what is now called the state of Maine. The Word is Resistance is a weekly podcast by white anti-racist Christians based on the Christian lectionary. We offer an anti-racist word for other white anti-racist Christians. Everyone is welcome to check out The Word is Resistance. Feedback, input, and invitations to being more accountable are always welcome. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'd like to start by describing a picture that has been on my office wall for many years. I've only recently realized how disturbing this picture is. Picture it. Inside a thick gold frame is a picture of a broad-chested, thick-shouldered, white person with blonde hair. Arms stretched diagonally across the frame. In the upper corner, the person's right hand is holding a weapon. And as your eyes follow the diagonal line of the picture, you see that the weapon is pointed in the opposing lower corner at a dark-skinned body on the ground. The white person's left foot is on the back of the head of the dark-skinned person. I want to repeat, I have only very recently realized how disturbing this picture is, but it's definitely a picture of a white body with a weapon drawn on a dark-skinned body on the ground. Oh, and the white body is clothed in bright blue. And finally, in their other hand, not the one holding the weapon, the white person is holding a golden scale, symbolizing justice. Can you picture it? Why do I have this picture on my office wall, or why did I? Where did it come from? And why am I describing it to you? Let me take you back to this picture. White person wearing blue, drawing a weapon on a dark body that's on the ground, about to be killed, and the symbolism of justice is being invoked. What is this picture? Can you take a guess what I'm talking about? This is a picture of St. Michael the Archangel. Google it. It's the first thing that comes up. St. Michael the Archangel. In this famous image, St. Michael the Archangel is vanquishing Satan. It's a religious icon. What I didn't say before is that the white body has wings and a halo. The weapon is a sword. The dark body has horns and a tail. There are many versions of this image. The one on my wall is based on a painting by Guido Reni in 1636. But Satan's skin has been significantly darkened in this mass-produced gift shop version. I bought this picture at a religious goods store in Boston, Massachusetts. 
It's a place that sells nativity sets, First Communion coloring books, and small statues. This is the store where Sister Lucia fitted me for the alb that I still wear on Sunday mornings for worship services. I'm certain Sister Lucia had absolutely no idea what I was talking about when I told her I was a Methodist. I'd go to the store on my lunch breaks when I was working during the weekdays at a nonprofit in Boston. I bought the picture of St. Michael the Archangel because we were reading Revelation in our Bible study at church. Since angelic warfare is a major theme, I thought it would be good to stand this picture up on the table while we met. I distinctly remember when I bought this picture because the person who sold it to me said, you're very lucky to get this. Normally we can't keep them on the shelf because he's the patron saint of police officers. They always come in here and buy these. And then the salesperson pointed at the picture one last time and said, thinks it will keep them safe. This was about 12 years ago. And it just hit me how messed up this is. I just realized that what I thought was just a campy tribute to Boston Catholicism actually looks a lot like a white officer executing a person with dark skin. Given the influence of whiteness on Euro-American culture, it is not surprising at all that the patterns of white supremacy are replicated in religious imagery. But this is a pretty blatant example, and it's been hanging on my wall for a long time. In the United States, about three people are killed by police every day, or a thousand people a year, based on numbers from the Washington Post. And then there are the vigilantes who murder additional people. In recent years, some of these street executions have been recorded on video, and noticed by a huge audience. Obviously, most are not. How do we respond when people are killed like this? What do we do about it? Do we notice it? Do we respond at all? This week, the lectionary includes the story of the death of Absalom, one of the most disturbing and unforgettable death scenes in the Bible, which is saying a lot. He was killed, we might say, at point-blank range by someone with the legal authorization to kill him. I'll tell the story in more detail in just a moment. Obviously, Absalom was not a victim of a police shooting, and I'm not trying to claim that his death is the same thing as police executing a person of color in the streets. But this is the story of of a horrific death that was recorded, so to speak. How do we respond to this story? Do you notice and respond to it? Do you know this story at all? Rather than read directly from a translation, I'm going to summarize it. Absalom was in the royal family. He was a prince. His father was King David, and Absalom had many siblings. One of his brothers raped one of his sisters. Absalom's brother, Amnon, raped their sister, Tamar. You can read in 2 Samuel chapter 13 about how their cousin, Jonadab, coached Amnon on the best way to rape his sister. When news of this spread, King David was very angry, but he would not punish Amnon. 
And all of this enraged Absalom so much that he, Absalom, had his brother, Amnon, murdered. We don't hear anything about Tamar in this story. The relationship between King David and his son Absalom eroded, and soon Absalom was staging a full-on coup against his father. All of this provides context for Absalom's death at the hands of his father's people. One of Absalom's physical characteristics emphasized a few times in the story was his gorgeous long head of hair. This becomes relevant when, in what turned out to be his last battle, Absalom tried to ride his mule under the thick branches of a great oak, and his hair got caught. Absalom was left hanging between heaven and earth. And while he helplessly hung there, an official of David thrust three spears into his heart. There he was executed. Years ago, when I first learned the story of Absalom's death, I'm sorry to admit, I found this story rather funny. It struck me as ridiculous and comical that this person's long hair got caught in the tree. But I don't find it funny anymore. I'm more sensitive than I used to be, I suppose. At this point in my life, I've seen far too many people executed while they were helplessly trapped. Although I do everything I can to avoid seeing videos of people being killed, it's pretty hard to avoid in the United States. Reading the Bible and viewing religious imagery will always be shaped for me by all of these street executions that are a part of all of us. How do we live with these stories? How do we respond? If you know just one thing about the story of Absalom's death, you probably know that David mourned. It's the last verse of chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. David cries out, O my child, Absalom, my child, my child, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my child, my child. When exploring this story in a church setting, people will often question David's grief. People ask, why? Why did David grieve Absalom's death if the two of them were at war? And the answer is in David's cry. David grieved Absalom's death because Absalom was David's child. I'm disturbed at how easily I forget that until David cries at the end of the chapter. Even though he is complicit in this death, David still mourns because he knows that despite circumstances, politics, and factions, he is still connected to the deceased. I chose this story out of all of the lectionary texts this week because it's about death and mourning death. One thing I know is that racism is deadly. It kills people. That's the point. That's its goal, to expose certain people to early death. In the response to this organized effort to kill people, white supremacy questions 
any grief that arises. Rather than question murder, executions, or the systemic relationships that always lead to death, white supremacy comes up with excuses and explanations that argue against grieving death and against letting people be free to live life. White supremacy normalizes death so that we're comfortable with hanging images of murder on our walls or blessing stories of rape and deadly dysfunction as the word of God. White supremacy makes it normal to live with these things, but not normal to mourn them. Cell phone videos, statues of Jesus, and pictures of angels that depict death are all around us. How do we respond to these executions? Do we notice them at all? I've taken down the picture of St. Michael the Archangel from my office wall. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm actually looking forward to bringing it into church sometime soon so that we can discuss this together on a Sunday morning. Honestly, I'm not sure how I'll connect it to a scripture passage, or if I will at all, and that's okay, because we're trying to read the Bible less frequently in my church anyway. We're trying to focus more on other things, like reality, grief, and creating the world we want to live in. This leaves us with the question, what do we want to put up on the walls where other images have been? If white supremacy and all of its associated accoutrements won't protect us, what will? In closing, I'd like to call your attention to a nationwide prisoner strike that is being called for this month, August of 2021. We're a few days away from the 50th anniversary of the Attica prison uprising. Please follow the hashtag, hashtag ShutEmDown2021 for more information. ShutEmDown2021, as in shut all of the prisons and jails and incarceration sites down. S-H-U-T-E-M-D-O-W-N 2021. Prison abolition is about imagining what other pictures we want to put up on the wall. How can we build up a new world together? You can also find out more at I am we Ubuntu. Dot com slash shut them down. That's I A M W E U B U N T U dot com slash shut them down. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, especially folks of color and non Christian people, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or fill out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org, showing up for racial justice, I should say, .org. 
give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a word of resistance from Reverend Anne Dunlap. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you so much, Max. My name is Will Green, and I appreciate sharing this time with you. I'm honored to be in this movement with you. <laughs>